she opened up a an inn along the river that also had a dance hall. Oh, fabulous. And was she was serving her famous eel dish. <gasps> a stew it was a stew, wasn't it? Yes, it was a stew oh. made with it, eel and oh. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that brings you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food here in France or around the world. They cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. But above all, they love it. Lyon is a city that is dear to my heart. It's known as the capital of French food, birthplace of the late Paul Bocuse, has historic silk passageways, an Eiffel Tower replica built beside a cathedral as a political statement, and it's home to one of the most fabulous light festivals every year. But it also has a historical place in food history that continues today. Lyon's Mère Lyonnaise are said to be the mothers of French cuisine. Today on Fabulously Delicious, we have a special guest to talk all things Mer Lyonnaise and Lyon, of course. It's International Women's Day today, and so I thought I would not only have a topic about fabulous women in French food, but speak to a fabulous woman involved in French food. Lucy Vanell, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Andrew, it's great to be here. Thank you. Lucy, before we talk about all things Mer Lyonnaise, and that's going to pick me up all throughout uh, this episode, I'm sure, um, I want our guests to get to know you a little bit uh, first. You grew up in uh, Syracuse, New York, and told me that there was snow on the ground seven months of the year. How does that affect the food that you, that you grow up eating, especially now compared to the fact that you live in France? Well, I'll tell you, back in the 1970s and 1980s, it had an enormous, profound effect on the food. Um, basically, that was before the, the, the supermarkets came on the scene, right? You know, they, they I remember that first supermarket. Um, and nowadays, you can get just about anything. I have friends who live there, and we, we do a little FaceTime for lunch, and she's having some exotic uh, things that I, you know, would never have even dreamed of in Syracuse when I was growing up. But um, we had a lot of frozen food. And my mom had a big, a big closet full of canned food. So, you know, that's what they did in the places that didn't have um, fresh vegetables most of the year. We had things in the summertime. There was a farmer's market in the summer. Um... But in the wintertime, there was a lot of getting by on those overwintered things. And, um, yeah, it was kind of a dismal. Right. <laughs> it's International Women's Day, as I mentioned before. It's a day to celebrate women. Your mum was certainly someone to celebrate. How many kids did she have? She had five kids. Five kids and also ran a small business. What did she do? She did. She had a miniature shop. Wow. Yeah, it was the, the largest collection of miniatures uh, in the state of New York. She had um, over 100 lighted rooms full of miniatures. My job as a child was setting up those uh, dollhouse scenes in every single room. I would go there after school and just spend all day doing that. That would be like you haven't grown up. Like you just continue to like live that sort of, that sort of escapism life. How fabulous is that? I still have my dollhouse. Wow. That's amazing. And so what sort of scenes did she have? Oh, there were scenes from every possible um, thing you can think of, you know, 
get to, you know, they were all scenes from how to, it was basically how to furnish your house, right? How to furnish your dollhouse. And normally a dollhouse is going to have a kitchen and a living room and a, perhaps a nursery. And, you know, the, 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 the miniature enthusiasts were mostly adults. There were not many children who came into the shop. These were adults who were collectors, who were buying imported, beautiful, beautifully made furniture. And they wanted to, you know, they wanted a little whimsy in the scene. So, yeah, it was pretty much based around the dolls, the dolls and their personalities. What got your mum into that? Yes, it, it was actually a story that my parents told over and over again. And it was when I was seven years old, I asked for a dollhouse and for Christmas. And my father um, was looking and, and they couldn't find a dollhouse that was made with good materials. So he just made one. Right. And then they were looking to furnish it, and they saw how expensive all the furniture was. And my father realized that he could buy it wholesale, but he had to buy 10 pieces of this and 10 pieces of that and a gross of this. And suddenly they started amassing all this dollhouse furniture. <laughs> so they opened up a little stand in um, in one of those weekend um, you know, flea market-type places. And they did that for a few months and then decided to go big. Um, they were in a shopping mall for a little while. And then um, and then my father built my mother's um, display cases for her new shop, uh, which became a destination for miniature enthusiasts uh, all over the East Coast of the U.S. And, um, and that's how it happened. It's all because I asked for a dollhouse. Fabulous! You're the you were the start of your mum's uh, business career. You're involved in food now, but you didn't actually study to be a chef, did you? Where? What did you study, and why, when you were younger? Well, you know, there are two different kinds of people: the people who have a goal of doing something, and then they set out and they work their whole life, and they become quite successful in doing that. <laughs> and then there are the people who you know, sort of take opportunities as they arise. And I'm one of those people. So I studied art. Um, and um, then afterwards, in order to pay off some student loans, I joined the army. And I, I um, was really out of place there, but I learned to speak Chinese there. And then when my enlistment was over, it was an enlistment. I didn't go in as an officer because I was not, that wasn't the goal. The goal was to go to language school. And um, so after that was over, I, you know, thought about whether I would go back to school or not and go for an advanced degree in art, in studio arts, or maybe travel a little bit. And I ended up getting a job uh, in China. And I ended. I spent five years there. Okay, so just backtracking just a little bit then. So when you went to the army, why did you you wanted to study languages? Why did you choose Chinese? I didn't. Oh, okay. I was told I was going to study Russian. You know, this was at the time when like Barishnikov was in the movie theaters, and everybody just had this dream, or at least. A lot of kids from my generation wanted to go to Russia, and <laughs> I wanted to go to Russia. Right. And I wanted to study Russian, and they told me, yeah, you can do that. And, you know, <laughs> I arrived for my language study, and they said, oh, 
uh, Company C, that would be Chinese. And there I was. I called my mom. She was like, what? I said, what am I going to do? And then I learned to speak Chinese and I ended up really loving it. Fabulous. And so then you you get a job in China. How does that come about? It comes about by sheer luck. (laughs) There was a man who um, lived in Syracuse, New York. And somebody said, you need to speak to him. And then the next thing you know, I'm on my way to China. That was it. And so what was life like living in China? It was really, um, you know, I was in my 20s. I had so much energy. My workday started at maybe about 8 o'clock in the morning and then would go to 9 p.m. Why? Because I was working in uh, metal trade and my and the, the, the markets opened, the London Metal Exchange opened at 3 p.m. And you had to be in contact with people, you know, at all stages. And my work involved, um, you know, preparing for this is kind of boring. This is going to be a very boring thing. No, I'm sure not. <laughs> but it ended up... My work ended up being all about traveling. And that's one of the reasons why I loved that job, because I was traveling all around France. I was traveling all around China and going to little nooks and crannies to the little places that only, you know, that had a metal smelter and maybe nothing else. Wow. And I would go and I was inspecting metals and, you know, doing these things. And then there was always a meal with the people from the from the smelter or the people who were involved in signing the contract or whatever. And it was always held at the nice hotel in the village. And they would come out with the the just the work of all the local specialties that they celebrate with food. And you know, Chinese gastronomy has such a long history. I know. And so this is what I was going to ask is that it must have been so different to the Chinese food from Syracuse, New York. I mean, are you kidding me? It was, it was truly amazing. And I got a chance to try things that I never would have eaten had I not, you know, things that might surprise you, things that might uh, seem unlikely uh, as gastronomic specialties but um my whole philosophy during that whole time was if they these people um get nostalgic feelings for from eating a certain thing a part of an animal that i'd never had before or you know some strange uh, unknown thing um if they're enjoying it i think that i can go as far as to reach out and do what I can to enjoy it too. And I found that I really didn't have a hard time with any of the things that we ended up enjoying together, even though sometimes they were surprising. Like there was a, an insect restaurant uh, where they were taking me and trying to scare me, I think. And they came out with this like plate of scorpions and they were fried. They were dead, but they looked like, you know, Tastes like chicken? More like potato chips. Yeah, it's funny how we can put memories into our own mind, you know, into our own 
minds without. Um, so people's memories sometimes um, embellish. Have you ever, you know, people can can remember tastes and things that didn't really exist. Like I was thinking, oh, maybe those were a little bit spicy, but I don't really remember exactly what they taste like. I do remember the texture, though. What, or should I say, who led you to France? Well, it was my husband. Um, I met him by chance again in a restaurant, and I had been just finished my five years of traveling around by myself, uh, blonde in the 1990s with shoulder pads and high heels and a very severe looking bob. Um, and I was attracting attention wherever I went with my business case and everything. And um, oftentimes I would feel quite alone sitting in a, in a hotel uh, restaurant with everybody crowding around looking through the windows to see me eating by myself. I know that um, MFK Fisher did an essay about the joys of eating alone, but I did not like it. I, um, you know, wished I'd had dining companions and was always thankful when I did have them. Um, and so my husband was traveling from France. I was in North Carolina at the time and um, he was alone. And we met in a, while we were waiting for a table in a restaurant and I just invited him to join me and my friend to, to have a meal with us because I knew how lonely it can be when you're on your own and you're in a restaurant and you're just by yourself. So that's how we met. He, he was from France. So how long until you followed him to France? Well, let's see. I think it was, this was when email had just started happening. So we, he, was, he was in North Carolina for 10 days. He left, we exchanged emails, we started writing back and forth and it started getting a little, you know, like, oh, I wish you were here. And then, you know, more and more uh, romantic as time went on. And I had enough time to organize. I was back in school at that time. So I organized to do a semester at La Sorbonne. Um, because I wanted to go to Paris. <laughs> and um, I think it must have been about nearly a year when I finally landed in Paris and we had been exchanging emails all that time. And so do you think that living in China helped in any way for you to make that move to France? A lot of people find it very difficult to make that first jump and leave home. And that one was one of my motivations uh, when I was just finished with school. I needed to get out of there. So I, I joined the army to help me with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I did, a, I did a good bit of traveling um, when I was, you know, I had opportunities to travel to different places. And, um, and so really, you know, the, the whole idea of traveling had been part of, you know, it had been ingrained in my in my psyche from early in my adulthood. So it didn't seem like a far step for me to to consider moving to France once once it was clear. Do you find that there's any influences or similarities with Chinese and French food? Well, I think one of the main things 
that really ties them both together is that they're both highly codified cuisine. And people think about, they, they really don't consider that, you know, um, when you're thinking about Chinese food, but it has such a long history and gastronomy in China is a very serious subject. And it's built into every transaction that you can have in that country. From the first word you say to your friend, Ni chunama, that means, have you eaten today? It also means hello, but literally it means, have you eaten today? That, that I found to be quite similar. When I was discovering, really deeply discovering uh, French food, I was also discovering it in the context of my life here and finding out that my hairdresser uh, was deeply, had some very strong opinions about a clafouti or um, listening to the bus driver talk to a garbage man about, you know, the, his mother's recipe for tartiflette. You know, you're going, wait a minute, this doesn't, but actually it's on the minds of the people in both countries all the time. And, you know, with my, my Chinese friends would travel outside of China. Now, I'm making a generalization here, okay? And when they travel outside of uh, China, they would always, and, we, and I'd say, oh, how was it? When they came back, they were like, oh, the food. It was so heavy or whatever. You know, they're talking about the food and saying they couldn't handle it. And oftentimes they would talk, everybody would joke around and say, you know, you're going to have to take your own food because, you know, they were like, even the Chinese restaurants could not produce anything. <laughs> you know, it was really quite interesting. And um, I found that my husband, when he finally came to the U.S. with me, he also had a hard time. He had a hard time with, you know, he's a physicist and he was in a laboratory and they were having a meeting. And these young physicists brought out a plate of Oreo cookies. And he was like, what is this type of cake? But not. And the cream, it was not cream. And I was like, honey, don't worry. They're connecting it to their childhood. It is a nostalgic indulgence. Don't, this is not going to, this is not telling you <laughs> anything about this culture. Oh, but he had such a hard time. Oh, my God. And, you know, we spent a lot of time. We spent one year in Los Angeles. And this was at the time before, you know, it was in the 1990s. So, like, the end of the 1990s. So, there was a whole food shop. And, like, one. And if you wanted to get some, like, real cheese, you had to go to to like Beverly Hills and go into a shop where it costs like $20 for a little camembert that would be the equivalent of like $2 in France. So, and it was just, it was scandalous, but we managed to survive. You now live in Lyon, one of my favorite French cities. Um, we'll talk about the food later, but apart from the food, what is your favorite thing about Lyon? Apart from the food? How can you ask such a question? The, the thing I love about Lyon as a French city is that it, um, it's livable and walkable. You can, walk, um, you can walk all day and get, go through the neighborhoods 
But at the same time, you're not in this just like huge vortex where you just completely lost. Like I get lost in Paris and I'm like, ah, <laughs> I, I'll just go in one direction all day long and I'll never, it'll never end. Um, but Lyon is a livable city. It's easy to take in. It's easy to settle into and to, to be a part of the everyday life there. Uh, there's different neighborhoods that are um, each have their own flavor. So you can kind of choose where you want to be. Um, that's what I like about it. Can you tell us tell us a little bit about those silk passageways? They're amazing. Well, you know, Andrew, they traditionally made silk here for centuries. Um, Lyon was the city where um, that was declared by royalty to be the only place in France where silk could be made. Um, so they they have uh, workshops all scattered through the city. Um, and the thing about silk is that it really doesn't uh, do well when it gets wet. So the, the passageways that people now ha have a chance to discover and to, and to wind their way through, and these are winding, meandering passages that go from one place to another. And um, at the time they were made to um, enable the silk workers to transport their materials from one building to another without going out on the street. Um, you know, you can imagine hundreds of years ago, there was a lot of stuff going on, not just rain, but, you know, people tossing their bedpan out the window or whatever, and you really don't want to get that dirty. So, um, so that's what it, it was about, keeping the silk clean and being able to move it from one place to another during the, the, all the different stages of the silk production uh, without damaging the material. I know there's a silk museum there now, but is there still a silk industry in Lyon? There is some um, artisanal activity, but it's not related to the original silk production. Like your mum, you now have a business of your own in Lyon. It's a fabulous cooking school. What's the main challenge for having a business in France? You know, for me, it was relatively easy to get started. Uh, it was a very straightforward process. In the years preceding when I started my business, I did some research, and it used to be very complicated and expensive to start a business. And then they made it very simple, uh, where you could start a business online with one euro, and, and then your business is there. Um, so that was easy for me. Um, in the beginning. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it. If you'd like to support the making of Fabulously Delicious, then there are many ways that you can do this. The first, possibly the most important, is to follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review and a rating. A five-star one, well, that would be fabulous, especially if you're listening on Apple or Spotify. Share Fabulously Delicious around with your friends, family, co-workers, or anyone that you know loves French food, or just food in general. Are you a Patreon member? Well, if you can support Fabulously Delicious by becoming one, for as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, you will receive exclusive Crave content just for you. You can find out more through the link in the show notes of this episode. Um, on to today's topic, the Mer Lyonnaise. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Before we talk about them in particular, can you explain to me what is meant by the term Mer in French in regards to cooking? 
Well, you know, the word mare means mother. And um, it's, it's, it's really something that's not specifically Leonet. Um, there were uh, mare who, who were women in the kitchen who were running restaurants in other parts of France as well. You've seen those little biscuits, les mères poulards. You know, those biscuits. Um, if an establishment is making something in the style of... Uh, in the countryside, there were women um, who opened up inns or were, were in the kitchens in inns, and their restaurants were, were called les mères this and les mères that. Um, so it's all about the women in the kitchen. Uh, whether she's making biscuits or running a restaurant or um, but in particular in Lyon Les Mères Lyonnaises uh, played a specific role in the development of, of the gastronomy. Just to sort of clarify so when we're talking about women in the kitchen it's actually so they were like running their own restaurants is that correct and also restaurants back then I think we need to sort of have a think about like in the 1700s and the 1800s a restaurant wasn't something that you go in and get like 10 you know have a menu with 10 different entrees 20 mains and 10 desserts were they they were often just places that were specific to one dish or something or or, or one type of cuisine is that right well yeah you could go into an inn at you know along your your travels and stop in and have whatever meal it is they're serving um so that's how the restaurants really started. Um, uh, around Lyon, um, we had people who were coming into the city. You know, Lyon was created right from the very beginning by the Romans as a trade center, as a major um, center for trade and, um, and for culture. And they built roads spanning off in all directions, which made it really easy for Lyon to, to eventually develop into a major trade center. Um, it was the capital of the northern territories of Gaul. So, you know, very important. They were all about laying the roads, going in all directions. And this eventually led to uh, people traveling to Lyon to trade. There were fairs and festivals that took place where you didn't have to pay tax on on the... Um, on the item that being was being traded, you know, for example, uh, one that was created in the 1500s still exists today. Every October, they have a, a ceramics festival where people come in and trade uh, and can sell their ceramics without uh, charging or paying tax on them, and that saves you a good 20% on everything. So, you know, they were they were doing this to encourage trade. Um, and Lyon has always been a major trade center and a center where people came together, where the church came together, where the brothers of the of the orders of the church would come together for meetings or a research center for the Catholic Church. Um, there was always people coming and going in addition to the silkworks. And so you have to feed these people. Yes. And along the rivers, there were inns where people could stop in not just for a meal, but to stay for the night, to leave the horse for the night and to have a meal there. So is this what led to the bouchon? So from my understanding, so a bouchon is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is sort of the restaurant that came from the Mère Lyonnaise. Right, exactly. Right, so the Mère Lyonnaise were um, 
the you know the first one that we think of you know from a methodological perspective it's very difficult to pin down details real historical proof of these women it's all based on the stories that we hear so it's an you know it's just stories being told from one person to another even if later there were books that told the story of this person or that person they didn't have a a historical backup these were just legends um so la mer guy we oui, yes i wanted to ask you about her appeared on the scene in lyon at about the time that the that restaurants became a thing in france um she opened up a an inn along the river that also had a dance hall oh fabulous was, she was serving her famous eel dish <gasps> A stew, it was a stew, wasn't it? Yes, it was a stew oh, made with it, eel. Um, oh. It was fabulous. Fabulous? And it gave her reputation. Well, I, from what they say, okay. And her reputation um, was basically solidified by her grandchildren, uh, who kind of capitalized on this because she had this, you know, this establishment that attracted a lot of traveling salespeople and it was a it was a highly entertaining place to be and the food was good and um later on they started talking about the history of it and you know how it family stories go i mean everybody's got a family member who tells the story about that huge fish you know whatever that was was actually one way and ended up another so um, you know, the stories, they can take on a life of their own. And I don't think we're, we will ever really know the real stories because women's names did not go on deeds. They, 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 they weren't allowed to sign the paper. Someone else was signing for them. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where when you go back far enough in time, you've got these names. And you've got proof that they existed, you know, the church registered where they were born. But um, there's really very little evidence. This is something of a theme then with the other mayors, that they would take cheaper cuts then? Um, We're talking about two different kinds of food here. And we're talking about a bouchon and the food of Les Mers Lyonnaises. Okay, because the bouchon is serving dishes that might be served to the worker, the food work, the, uh, sorry, the silk workers. So for example, we have this city that is in the center of a, like a, like a, like a wheel with spokes going in all directions. Um, that's bringing in goodness from every direction imaginable around the city. Geographically, we're surrounded by a variety of landscapes that brings us um, an immense um, richness to the offerings available to Lyon. So you had these um, very influential uh, people who were based in Lyon. You have people who were um, uh, influential people who were affiliated with the church. You had influential people who were affiliated with trade in general. You had influential people who were affiliated with the Silk Works. Um, and then also throughout the centuries, royalty that was coming in and out and holding court here. Um, and 
when it came to the silk workers who were eventually up on the hill of the Poirous after the French Revolution, there was this long-standing tradition of the very best ingredients already coming into Lyon. And the people who were managing the households of the influential people who remained after the revolution, uh, they had the first choice. They had the choice of the big, of the, the prime cuts, the best parts, the, the beautiful chickens, the, the, the lovely um, cheeses, uh, the wild mushrooms coming in. They had all of those lovely things. And then what the silk workers had was what was left over. They had what was coming up on the back of the donkey cart. And that was being turned into dishes that were serving a lot of people at once. So you had dishes that they did over and over again through um, several generations of silk making on the hill. And these dishes kind of developed a reputation of their own. Um, they, they were codified. They were basically, um, they had their own specialties that they were eating and they had their own names and, and kind of special um, ingredients that were not really the same as what you might see on the dinner table of a wealthy merchant's uh, home. So um, eventually these dishes made their way into these um, establishments that were welcoming people who would come to Lyon to trade. And it was actually, it was quite entertaining to come into the city, leave your horse to be brushed, you know, the bouchon, the name Bouchon comes from um, this bundle of hay that they would hang on the outside of uh, uh, the outside to indicate that you could brush, have your horse brush, and spend some time here. And Bouchon to bouchonner the horse is to brush down the horse. Okay, bouchonner is a verb meaning brush down. Who was uh, Mayor Phil? I can't pronounce this one. Philo, F I L L O U X. Philo. Oui, la mère Philo. Oui. La mère Philo. And why was she called uh, la reine de Poulard? Uh, that was because her signature dish was um, the, the uh, breast chicken in half morning, which was a whole chicken served at the table, which had been cooked with, they, she stuffed truffles under the skin all over and then roasted that. And she would come out and carve it at the table. Yum. Apparently she... She only cooked five dishes, including yes. that one. That's amazing. Yeah, I, well, this is, you know, well, you were talking about this, this vast menu, going into a restaurant and choosing what you want and you know, all these things. But when it came to Les Merlionnaises, in their day, um, it was not the time where you would go to the market and be inspired by a celery root and make a velouté out of it to serve that day in your restaurant. You know, the, the, that came later, you know, this inspiration and the spirit of and the, the, you know, all of this surrounding the individual humble ingredients came with La Cuisine Nouvelle, which was much later. And what these women were, were, were very, very good at doing their thing, which they did over and over and over again. So. Yeah, the menu might change through the seasons, but it always remained pretty much the same. 
So it was a half morning chicken. So it's a poulet demi duel, D E U I L. There's my French. Dui. Okay. Dui. Um, Dui. Okay. I can't pronounce it. Um, But apparently, when she retired, it was estimated that she'd uh, carved, oh my gosh, I don't know how many, something like half a million chickens. Well, for a brief time, they had this little museum set up down at Hotel Dieu. And it was this history of the of the French gastronomy. And they had her knife on display. The one knife she used the whole time. It was very small. It was like, um, you know, just a little bit bigger than a couteau d'office. It was really quite small. And she would carve up that chicken um, lickety-split every time. Amazing. Amazing. Mayor Gee, who we mentioned before with the smoked eels, um, her granddaughter was also Mayor Gee, uh, or uh, La Genie. Um, and in 1936, they, their restaurant was awarded three Michelin stars. But there's another mayor that was awarded Michelin stars, and the, she actually broke a record that men couldn't even get, didn't she? Who was that and what was her record? Well, that was La Mer Brasier. La Mer Eugenie Brasier. Um, and she came on to the scene um, quite by accident. She was a maid, wasn't she? She was a nanny. A nanny. And she um, loved to, she realized that she loved cooking when she had to take over for the head cook uh, when the head cook fell ill while the family was on vacation. So, so she she realized that she really enjoyed it. It wouldn't have been the easiest job in the world to be a cook at that time. Oh, no. Uh, her boss, her boss, there must have been some exchange. I don't know exactly what it was, but she ended up, um, through the influence of uh, the family that she worked for, getting a spot in the kitchen of La Mafille. And she was taken on as a stagiaire there. Um, and that's where she uh, basically got her start in restaurants. Amazing. And so what was the award that she ended up getting? Well, she became the first chef in the history of France, man or woman, to get a total of six uh, concurrent Michelin stars. Amazing. So she had two restaurants. One was in the centre of Lyon. And the other one was just outside of Lyon, to the west of Lyon, in the hills there. Um, she had been ordered to on bed rest by a doctor who said that she needed to get some rest. She went to her little country place just outside of Lyon and um, ended up turning it into a restaurant because she couldn't stop. And those two restaurants, the one she had in the middle of town and the one uh, out just outside, which if you go by Google and you and you type in how long is it going to take to drive there, it's about 45-minute drive by car now. So it must have been a good couple of hours back in the day with the old cars and, you know, whatever. Um, but it was a destination, and it got its three Michelin stars. So it was six Michelin stars, and this was a record that she held for a good 25 years after she died. Um, she's regarded as the mother of uh, French, of modern French cooking. Is there a dish that we would know around the world that could be that would be attributed to her? 
that's hard to say, you know, um, because what she was doing um, were very traditional um, dishes that you might find uh, in a lot of restaurants now. I mean, everyone's doing poulet, uh, poulet de Bresse à la crème, for example. You know, that was one of her signatures. Um, she took um, dishes. Uh, direct from La Mefiou with her when she opened up her first restaurant, which had, um, how many covers did she have at first? I think she had something like 12 covers in the beginning. It was really quite small. And so she trained under Mefiou that we mentioned that carved all those chickens. Oh, she was not allowed to carve the chickens for sure. <laughs> right. She started, you know, she was doing dishes. She learned how to do this. She, she was doing, she was doing what she was, what they were giving her to do. And um, there, from her own memoirs, she recounts that it was quite difficult because um, La Mafiu liked to have a strong control over everybody. And if you express creativity in any way, then obviously that wasn't No, I want the truffles under the skin. I told you that, under the skin. <laughs> Well, that was the big question about the foie gras and the um, and the artichoke. You know, La Mefiou wanted it um, seared just before serving, and La Mefrasier, when she opened up her restaurant, did exactly the same recipe, except for she was serving it cooked uh, au torchon and served cold. So, you know, wow. Everybody was probably just like pulling out their... You know, ah! <laughs> Can't do this. Um, oh my God. Mayor uh, she trained none other than Paul Bacuse. How do you think she influenced his cooking? Well, if you look at the dishes that he served, that they're serving in his restaurant today, and that he served for many years in his uh, flagship restaurant, you see uh, evidence of Mama Brazil everywhere. He just, you know, the, the, the poulet. Um, with the truffles under the skin and various things that, that he served. But I think that the most importantly, and what eventually gave way to the birth of La Cuisine Nouvelle uh, with Paul Bocuse and his contemporaries, and also Alain Chappelle, who was also um, a stagiaire for La Mébrasier, um, was the appreciation for good ingredients. And for an understanding that accepting anything less than perfection in that is compromising the quality of the final dish. So, you know, so these these chefs who followed, who, you know, did their stage with her, they cut their teeth with La Mère She ran a tight ship. Um, you don't get three Michelin stars without doing that. Um, you know, they learn how to do it right from the very beginning. Now, her granddaughter has taken over this tradition now, hasn't she? Uh, her granddaughter is not a cook. Right. Um, so what her granddaughter has done is she has um, spearheaded, I think that they've been doing it now for a good 10 years now, um, an association, a nonprofit organization that has as its goal uh, the support of women in the culinary arts. 
So what they do is every year they offer a scholarship to young women who are starting their careers in um, food and restaurant uh, service as well. They have uh, people who would like to go into um, restaurant management as well. They're giving them scholarships. Um, and they also have a literary prize that they give to women who write about food. And so now you actually have a special event coming up that uh, is related to oh, this in yes. some way, isn't Thank it? Thank you for mentioning that. Yes. Yes, I do. Tell us all about um, it. You know, I had a meeting today where we were just doing a little run through for this uh, event that we're going to be having later this month. Um, it's going to take place on the 26th of March. Uh, that's a Saturday. And it's going to be a celebration of La Mer Brasier. And we have, um, it, I'm doing it through uh, an organization called Les, Les Dames d'Escoffier. Have you heard okay, of this? Yes. Okay, yes. Yes, I have. Yeah. It's a non it's a, it's a, a multinational nonprofit organization that has the goal of um, uplifting women in food as well. I'll put all the details in the show notes for the episode. Oh, good. So we're going to have um, three cooking teachers, uh, one in Paris. Her name is uh, Susan Herman Loomis. She's a cooking teacher who ran her school um, on Rue Tatin. And um, she wrote a book about that. And then uh, she's actually written 14 books. Um, and then uh, and she's based in Paris. There's me, who's based in Lyon. And then um, a cooking teacher named Rosa Jackson. Yes, Rosa was on here talking about uh, the petty farce well, last year. You have, yes. you, you have your thumb on the pulse. <laughs> Merci beaucoup. So Rosa's going to be, going to be uh, in Nice, and the three of us together at the same time will be uh, presenting different courses of a meal that we've come up with in um, homage to uh, Eugenie Brasi. Another guest from our podcast last year, Tanisha Townsend is involved as well, is she not? Exactly. She is going to be matching wines to every course. Perfect. Gosh. So how can we get uh, tickets and things for this event? So this event is on Eventbrite. But what you can do is you can um, Google search LDEI Table Talks. That Les Dames d'Escoffier, it's part of their um, uh, event they have every March called Table Talks. And um, you can sign up through there or uh, look for the event on Eventbrite. Fabulous. Well, as I said, I'll put a link in the show notes for this episode so you'll be also be able to get it there. Finish off a little bit with the uh, Mayor Leonese. What would Leonese food be without the mayors? It would still be there. It would? Um, yeah. I, you know, it started thousands of years ago. It started with the Roman Empire. It started with the roads, um, bringing things to Lyon. Um, the silk workers had an enormous impact on uh, what we now consider to be Lyonnais specialties. Uh, that started in the 1800s. But in between that time, there was a, an enormous development that went around um, the whole history of gastronomy Lyonnaise that existed way before Les Mers Lyonnaise. Um, 
the great thing about Le Melionnaise is that the uh, gastronome uh, known as Kernansky just happened to come to Lyon doing one of his food tours. Um, his job was basically to, to travel around in a car in an automobile in the 1930s when automobile tourism was really huge. And his job was to travel around and to comment on the food everywhere around France. He was going to all the little nooks and crannies that previously hadn't had access to the rail system. He was digging out the regional specialties everywhere. He comes to Lyon. He sees what the markets are offering that are with products coming in from all directions. He eats at the Bouchon and experiences that special culture. And then he ate with uh, Mère Lyonnaise. And that was when he declared Lyon to be the gastronomic capital of the world. So I think Lyon gastronomy would exist. Although, who knows? Was it because of Le Marionnaise that he um, deemed Lyon to be the gastronomic capital? Or um, was it because of all the other factors that come together at that very moment to make it uh, a, a great experience? So it's hard to say. I would say, yes, it existed. It would still exist, but they played, it, they played a role. Finally, my question I ask everybody that comes on to Fabulously Delicious, what's the most fabulous thing to you about France? About France? Um, I think it is the fact that um, at the French dinner table, everything goes. You can talk about all kinds of things at the table, finish your meal, give everybody a kiss on each cheek, and your life moves on. I mean, when I first went to, to my husband's home in uh, Toulon, and there was a family dinner, and there was this big, huge, heated discussion that got into politics and philosophy and this and that and feminism and that and that. And everybody seemed so upset. I was like, oh my God, the family's breaking apart before my eyes. And then everybody was like, okay, good night. And then everybody was friends the next morning. <laughs> very French. Yes, very French. <laughs> and one of the things I love the most about it. Fabulous. About Lucy Vanell, thank you so much for joining us on Fabulously Delicious today. It's been fantastic talking to you about all things Lyonnaise and the Mayor Lyonnaise and uh, learning all about uh, your life before France and now in France. Lucy, thank you for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Andrew, thank you. Have a great afternoon. Merci beaucoup. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to be read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading.